0: Well, let's pray together, and then we're going to open God's Word as we do each week and look at this life-giving, life-changing Word from Christ. Let's pray together. Our God and our King, we praise you that you are the living and true God who is over all things. There is not one atom in the entire universe that exists outside of your control and your dominion. We are part of that creation. You have called us not only to submit ourselves to your lordship, but to enter into relationship with you, and what a privilege it is to be known by the living God, to be loved by you. Oh, help us to understand more of that great love and that great sovereignty today, that our lives may take their proper place in this world, in this moment in history We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would open our hearts to receive your truth as it is, authoritative, life-giving, heart-transforming. And as we receive your word, we pray that you would empower our wills, not only that we would believe it, but that we would live in light of it, that we would act upon it and do everything that you are, are calling us to do. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that in our time together, the Spirit would be the great instructor, that you would guard my mouth from speaking anything that would be inaccurate or untrue, but that what is spoken in this place, what we even think in response to your word as we read it and study it, would be guided and, and directed by the Spirit of God. We want to know you. That means we need to know your truth. Thank you for it. We ask for your blessing upon Kevin as he ministers On the island of Oahu this morning, bless that missions conference and those dear saints who have gathered in your name to advance your cause, your gospel. We ask for your blessing over the Parkers as they return and pray that they would be renewed in their spirits and thank you for the hope of the gospel as they have laid to rest uh, Matt's grandmother. We ask, Lord God, that for those who cannot be with us today because of sickness, that you would strengthen them, that you would bring healing as they are in need of it, that you would bring encouragement to their hearts because they are away from this assembly today. So minister the grace of Christ to them. And then for each of us who have gathered here today, Lord, I suppose that there are hundreds of needs represented by this small group and some of a great spiritual nature and some of a physical or financial nature, but needs that draw our attention away from you and would distract us to the point where we would forget you in your greatness and glory. So bring all of those things into their right position and place. Give us the eternal perspective, not only upon our lives, but upon you as the great God. And all of this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark? And if you're using one of the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you or underneath your chair, you'll find this portion of the Scripture On page 849, 849, for those of you who are new, we've been making our way over a number of months through the Gospel of Mark. It is one of four accounts of the life, the death, the resurrection, the earthly ministry of Jesus, who is known as the Christ or the Messiah. And we're coming now to the end of chapter 12. He's in the final week of His earthly life before the cross, He's only a couple of days away from that moment where he will lay down his life as the sacrifice for our sins, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And for this last week before his crucifixion, he's been moving in and out of the city of Jerusalem, specifically moving in and out of the temple precinct. He's done everything from teach the scriptures to clean out uh, the... The wicked commerce that was established at that particular point tied to the sacrificial system, but never what God intended. Money changing for profit. The sale of sacrificial animals for profit. Robbing that temple precinct of its true spiritual design by God that it would be a place of prayer for all nations, that it would be a place of drawing near to God as He manifested Himself. But at that point, it's just big business. And so Jesus continues to confront those like the scribes that we will see in this passage, Pharisees, Sadducees, religious rulers who had so twisted and distorted the, the religion that God intended to be a blessing to the people that Jesus has to confront them. And we're going to see a little more of that today. At the same time, he's ministering in such personal and and merciful ways, gracious ways, and there are several individuals that appear in the course of this week that we can also learn a lot from, and one of those is a dear widow, and we'll come to that in just a few moments. So I'm going to read this portion of Scripture, and I want you to follow along in your copy of the Scripture. Uh, If you forgot your reading glasses and say, I, I can't see the words in my lap Uh, and that would be me, if I didn't have these glasses, then there is uh, scripture uh, on the screen that's available for you as well. So let's begin reading in Mark 12, verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And The great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, and they like greetings in the marketplaces, and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, it might seem that these three paragraphs don't really go together, but I think you'll see very quickly they really do. It's part of this larger movement of of Mark's gospel at this point where Jesus is showing and teaching us important truth. I want to tie it to the last portion of Scripture we were in, even just a week ago, where he said the, the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then remember, he paired this a second one to it, uh, just making them inseparable, saying you should love others as you love yourselves. And he says there are no greater commandments than these. I think he's showing us a contrast between those who, who don't love God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind, but rather love themselves with someone like the widow who clearly loves God supremely with all that she is and has. Uh, Let's go back to verse 35 and look first of all at what I want to call a divine examination. And Jesus is the one who's doing the examining here. Now, he's posing a question that has to do with his identity. And throughout the Gospel of Mark, we've seen Jesus identified as God's Son on several different occasions. It's how Mark opens the Gospel. Back in chapter 1, verse 1, he writes very plainly, this is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then in verse 11 of that very first chapter, as he's describing Uh, the the baptism of Jesus, he notes that a voice comes from heaven and that voice testifies, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Clearly, this is God the Father speaking audibly over his one of a kind son, Jesus. Then the Mount of Transfiguration, this was a number of months ago, but back in chapter 9, God the Father spoke audibly again, and as Jesus is there on top of that mountain, and Peter, James, and John are with him, he is transfigured in their presence, and they see his unveiled glory, and it's such a spectacularly brilliant light that they, they don't even know what to do with themselves. Peter, James, and John are overwhelmed, but God the Father speaks again and says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So this is only the fourth time, though, in Mark's gospel, that the title Christ has been used. Christ is that title that refers to him as God's anointed one or Messiah. Those terms are interchangeable. Messiah has its roots in the Hebrew. Christ has its roots in the Greek language of the day. So Jesus, though, is Quoting directly from Psalm one ten, verse eleven. And I kind of want to pull this apart a little bit so you can see what he's actually doing here. Because this is a very direct question to the scribes and Pharisees, that religious crowd that prided themselves in being expert in the Bible, and yet Jesus continues to point out the fact that they don't understand as much as they think they do, and more significantly, because they don't understand what they should, they don't actually live the way they should. That's an important lesson for us because what we know and believe about God or this world or our work or our family will shape the way we live in relationship to God or the world or work or family. Now remember, these are the religious leaders who think they know everything. And they've, they've been at war with Jesus for quite a while now. But this question is, is, is so directly pointed to the true condition of their hearts that we have to pay attention. So we ask this question, and he's quoting straight out of Psalm 110, where the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. But notice in Mark's gospel, uh, he he notes this uh, phrase that Jesus included. Um, David himself in the Holy Spirit. And that phrase has reference to the doctrine of inspiration. It's Part of the reason that we we take this book so seriously is that according to God's word, uh, the apostles wrote of this later in the New Testament, that no prophecy has come by the will of a person, a human being. Peter says, holy men of old spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And David's one of them. And Jesus is, is acknowledging that here, and we need to recognize that this book is not of human origin. Oh, sure, there were human beings who had their hands on quills and pens, and, and some of them wrote on parchment, and some of them wrote on papyrus and whatever other forms of paper were available in those days, but ultimately it comes from God, and that's why we take it so seriously. And God is, and Jesus is reminding this particular group that God himself, the Holy Spirit, has declared certain things here. And what has been declared? Well, first of all, he says, the Lord says something, and if we could read the Hebrew, you'd see it's that special name, Yahweh, a name that God uses in, in an exclusive way. It's the name that refers to him as the self-existent God, the great I Am, if you want to think in terms of Old Testament teaching and and understanding. So Yahweh says to my, and that my obviously has reference to David because he's the author of this psalm, to my Lord, and then he uses the Hebrew term Adonai. Remember even last week when I ran through some of the names and titles and characteristics and attributes of God, Adonai was one that we included. and, And I noted very briefly Uh, that it has reference to God in his great sovereignty. He's master and ruler. So the self-existent one says to David's master and ruler, sit at my right hand. Now we know that the the right hand is the position of authority and honor. And it's clear that what Yahweh is intending to do is to position Adonai as you would position a king, a sovereign. He's enthroned, if you will. And he says, sit here until I make your enemies your footstool. And you begin to understand that, that what Yahweh has in mind is actually vanquishing all enemies in the, in the world and bringing them under the, the uh, dominion of Adonai. Now, Christ question. In a sense, we'll put these scribes in a pickle. Do you know what that term or expression means? Am I am I using foreign languages? Hey, put you in a pickle. Everybody knows what that means. Carmen, are you good with that? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> he's putting them in a hard place because he's saying, so how can Messiah be both the son or the the biologically descended son of David and David's Lord? Now, I love my son. I have two sons. I love Seth and I love Luke, but I'm going to tell you right now, I don't have any intention to put them in a position of authority over me. <laughs> I'm not willing to give that up. And I like to remind, my oldest son is out of the house now, so he, he's an independently functioning guy, but I'm not calling him, asking you know, for advice and life direction and, son, what do you think I should do? I suppose I could. And I, furthermore, I like to remind my younger son that he's still driving my car, eating my food, using my hot water, living in my house. And a day's coming where he's not going to be able to do that anymore, and hopefully soon. <laughs> See, there's, a, there's a, a relationship between fathers and sons where there's, there's some authority there, right? And, and Jesus is trying to get the scribes to think really hard about the authority of Messiah. Because unfortunately, they're, they're looking at this too narrowly. They're excited about a Messiah coming, and just like we've talked over the last several months, it's similar to that, that theme that you've heard in American politics, But they're not trying to make America great because America doesn't exist in the first century at the time of Christ. But they're hoping Israel will become great again. And so they're looking for a Messiah who can restore the dominion of King David because he's the greatest king Israel's ever known to this point. So they're thinking nationally And they're thinking historically, and they're also thinking temporally. And the reality is Psalm 110 is not written to generate some kind of nationalistic enthusiasm for the restoration of Israel to global power. It's actually given to expand our imaginations and our understanding beyond the particular nation we might be living at a moment to say, there's a great king who has a seat of authority over all kingdoms. And to bring us back to that point personally where we say, What is my relationship to him? So there's a problem that Jesus is identifying here. It's a twofold problem. First of all, that the scribe's teaching of passages like Psalm 110 is too simplistic and misleading. They see Messiah as more of a a political savior, a national savior, and, and that's just too simplistic. The second is this, because the scribes don't fully understand who Messiah is, they're not recognizing Jesus at his appearance because he is God's Messiah, and consequently, they don't honor and serve him as the Lord that he is. What about you? As you consider Jesus what do you truly believe about him? And I'm not asking, like, what's in your head about him, but if we were to just follow you around and see how what you believe about Jesus translates into the life you live, transfers into the relationships that you presently have, the work that you're doing, I mean, what, what would that actually say you truly believe about Jesus? And to be very specific, you might acknowledge as we were singing earlier and reading from some of these scriptures, oh, he's, he's God's Messiah. He's king over all. He's a great savior. He's our redeemer, our good shepherd. We could run through a whole other list of, of names, titles, and attributes of God. Yeah, but does that impact the way you're living? To where you would say, because he is king, I am fully submitted to him. Or to put it in, in the terminology of the verses just before this, I really do love him with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. Because he's king. See, it's easy again to, to look at the religious crowd in Jesus' day and go, man, what a bunch of arrogant, self centered, uh, self promoting Pharisees they are, or scribes, or Sadducees, or whatever group that you look at there and you go, oh man, they just don't get it. Yeah. But, beloved, let's be honest before God today. Is there a disconnect between what you know intellectually about Jesus? and the way you actually live your life. So there's a divine examination underway, but in the second paragraph, I think there's divine condemnation that emerges very clearly. Look at verse 38 with me again. In his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes. Now Jesus warns about devotion to self. That's where this is gonna go. And that's a strong word that is When he says, beware, he's saying, you need to look seriously at this. You need to discern what's happening, and you need to understand where this kind of thinking and living will lead a person. It's always curious to me that that some of the most dangerous paths in life are religious paths. These are not God deniers, atheists and agnostics. I mean, these are... Really zealous religious people. The problem is they don't believe the right things about Jesus and consequently don't practice the right things. The warning here beware is tied to what comes at the end of verse 40. They will receive the greater condemnation. There's a judgment coming, and Christ Himself is the judge. So there's a warning about devotion to self. Now, you ever thought much about your clothes? There's a, there's a really popular or famous book, I should say. I don't know how popular it is now, but it's titled, You Are What You Wear, What Your Clothes Reveal About You. Some of you think a lot about that. Some of you clearly don't think at all about that. <laughs> the author of this book, though, is, it, it, this is what fascinates me. Jennifer Baumgardner, who is the author of this book, argues that all those things uh, the, the choices we make are actually manifestations of deeper life issues. Did you know there's so much significance about your clothing you're wearing today? We, we can see those deeper life issues <laughs> right now. She is actually seeking for us, the reader, to understand that our appearance, according to her theory, is a representation of your inner, not just your inner self, your inner unresolved conflicts. I'm starting to feel a little paranoid. What does my my sweater say about my unresolved inner conflicts? I don't know. Maybe I need to read her book. Well, what's interesting is that I, I use this just as a, almost a humorous illustration of a truth because Jesus is actually going to talk about what these people wear and then give us some other descriptions of what devotion to self looks like, but I'm so thankful he wants to go past the psychology of, of why these individuals dress the way they do, and he's actually addressing a heart issue. And, and I'm not like going to jump into preaching against or for a certain style or kind of dress or whatever, although you do need to know your, your clothes do say something, there are all kinds of messages we can send by our clothing. And, and what Jesus addresses here, though, would be a, a heart attitude, of devotion to self. And so he gives us a, a three-part description or three broad categories, if you will, that describe the devotion to self that these scribes in particular are known for. And the first is this, an appetite for attention. Look at what the text says. They walk around in long robes. And those long robes, and, and there's a little picture here uh, that might give you some idea of how they attired themselves, but they were fine garments, and they were intended to parade the spiritual authority that these scribes and Pharisees possessed. Then Jesus says they like greetings in the marketplaces, so titles of deep respect were really important to them. The modern-day equivalent of it would be referring to somebody as doctor. You know, and, and I have no problem with somebody who's in medical school for years and years and, and earns the degree and passes the appropriate tests and gets all the licenses, I mean, you should show honor for that. But if you have to insist that people refer to you in a particular way, you're the one who has an issue, not the people around you. They, like, they love the titles. So that's what the greetings in the marketplaces would be. Notice the third thing, the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts Again, it's all about maintaining position. And they want their position to be known. They want it to be recognized. They want to be honored by others. One historian notes that even these seats in the synagogue were, were positioned in this particular way. Listen to this. That the, the scribe would sit at the front with his back to the chest or a special box containing the, the scrolls, the Torah, the Word of God. And he would sit in full view of the congregation... This is what Jesus is condemning in the scribes for their desire for these tokens of status, for the self-satisfaction it perpetuates. It'd be a little bit like in this assembly if we, if we bought a really expensive chair, and every Sunday I took my seat here, and I just sat, and while the worship's going, I look out, and I nod, smile approvingly of you. (laughs) And it comes my time to preach. And I pull out the word of God, pray to the front, do my thing so that you would say, Dr. Brooks is amazing. That's what Jesus is confronting. And by the way, I, I don't have an earned doctorate An appetite for attention. Second thing is this. It's an abuse of authority. This is what is most tragic. Look at what Jesus says next characterizes this devotion to self. They actually devour widows' houses. And he uses terminology that describes predators as they kill and consume their prey. They devour it. So they're, they're on the hunt. They're looking for the vulnerable finances that vulnerable widows might possess. The term is used in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 20, uh, by the Apostle Paul alongside other terms that describe those who enslave, who take advantage of others, who even physically abuse and beat others. So even in its semantic domain, if we want to refer to it in that way, it, it is a term that conveys the idea of abuse and misuse. And this capacity to devour the households or the resources of some of the most vulnerable belies a monstrous greed dwelling in the heart of these supposed religious ones. What makes it particularly evil is that they are taking advantage of some of the most vulnerable people in the society that they were a part of. And may I say to you that any group, any church, any individual that even in the name of of God exploits the financial or material property of its people is corrupt. And while the Bible teaches us that we ought to generously give to those in need, and each of us as, as a part of God's family ought to give something of our resources that he first gave to us, It doesn't actually affix an amount or even a percentage and demand that. God actually teaches a a principle of willing, grace-motivated giving. You can read about that in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. It's, It's a beautiful thing. But here are men who are so devoted to self that the monster of greed erupts from them and like wild animals, they devour the resources of the most vulnerable. There's a third category, and that is this, an appearance of deep piety. Masking it all, similar to where we were over the last couple of weeks, they wear this mask of deep piety. Notice what Jesus says, for a pretense, make long prayers. It's just an outward show. So from the long robes to the long prayers and everything else in between, these men are devoted to self, period. And where Jesus Christ should be enthroned in their souls, self is firmly seated upon the throne of their hearts. And when they ought to be saying, my Lord, as David refers to Messiah, to Adonai, they actually are sending out a message that says, I'm Lord of my life. Is that you? Again, if we followed you around day to day, would we we be persuaded that Jesus Christ is really Lord of your life, or would we say, there's an individual who really believes himself or herself to be Lord? That's a challenging question, isn't it? So which is it? The Bible commentator, William Lane, has written, this displacement of the honor of God from the center of concern is what distinguished the scribes from Jesus and exposed them to the searching judgment of God. If we look at the text, he says very simply, they will receive the greater condemnation. You know, it was not true only in Christ's day. There are religious leaders in our day who exploit and abuse and who will face the same kind of condemnation. There are actually several examples of this, and I won't share the name of this particular individual publicly. I'm not trying to hide it necessarily, but I don't want the focus to be on this person, but on this kind of lifestyle. And it grieves me that even this particular individual tries to maintain a a reputation nationally of being an evangelical Christian, and I think you are not even a follower of Jesus, let alone an evangelical. She's frequently introduced with the title doctor, and the reality is she has no earned degree. She pastors a large church at present. It's not the first one. There have been a series of churches that she has pastored, and the last one um, defaulted on a $29 million loan, declared bankruptcy, while she maintained a lavish lifestyle, even saying to members of her congregation recently that before they paid an electric bill, they ought to pay their tithe to the church tries to dress it up with scriptures that indicate when we give generously, so generously we reap generously, but it's such an abuse and distortion of God's teaching of that truth that, that she is a clear example of this very kind of devotion to self. Preaching messages like that to needy people in her congregation while she drives multiple luxury cars. We all see that for what it is, and yet sometimes we don't see that for what it is. I'm always amazed that individuals like this seem to be able to generate a large following, and I think, Lord, how do these precious people become so deceived? Well, because spiritual authority can be intoxicating even for people who follow it. I just want to caution you. That those who are truly devoted to Christ and truly following him do not center their lives around material possessions or big salaries or lavish expressions of of whatever. There is a humility that characterizes true devotion to Christ. And that's where Jesus takes us, and I'm so thankful for this. And this is the third category, and this is a divine commendation. Again, look at the text with me. Verse 41, he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. I think Jesus is showing us the heart of true devotion, even putting a face, if you will, a and a couple of examples of what it means to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And I want to be careful as we go through this because it'd be easy to just say, oh, well, God wants me to empty my bank account. Mm, let's, let's not conclude that too quickly. There are a number of coins that are referred to in the New Testament, and there's a, a picture of some. And that bottom right corner is the smallest coin. Let me blow that up and give you a little larger picture of that. It's referred to as a, a lepton and the two lepta that are referred to in this text were, were the smallest Roman coins in circulation at that particular point. To give you some comparison, it is the equivalent of one 64th of a denarius. And that's where everybody goes, oh, then I know exactly how much that is, right? Because we all know the value of a denarius. Well, a denarius in, in that day and age was the typical day's wage for a laborer. So to, to kind of put that in, more into our vernacular. If you're working, let's just even s- a very modest entry-level sum of, of 15 dollars an hour, you work an eight-hour day, you've earned 120 dollars. So divide that by 64, and that gives you an idea of what the, these two coins were valued at. By my mathematical genius, uh, that works out to about a dollar and87 cents. You start thinking of what, what could you do with a dollar and eighty-seven cents. You know, one of the first things that came to my mind—a dollar sixty-two—so you'd have change left over. Man after my own heart. You could take that to Costco and have a meal. Wow, I didn't—I I didn't take time to calculate what tax would be. So now the question is, what do we do with our extra 15 cents? (laughs) It's so small, it's laughable. But notice what Jesus says about this gift. First of all, it's out of her poverty. Yeah, I guess. Then he says, look look at the Bible with me. It's everything she had, all she had to live on. Who lives on a dollar and 87 cents? Impoverished widows. A widow who, even by the story, has no name, We don't know the context. We don't know how long she's been widowed. We don't know anything about the husband that died and and left her behind. We don't know anything about her children. But this woman sacrifices what is necessary, all she had. One author writes, it was this that the disciples needed to understand, for the call to the gospel is a call for absolute surrender to God and total trust in Him. That's what moves a woman to give her last dollar and 87 cents. You see, genuine devotion is first of all measured by our all. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. But it's also revealed, I want you to catch this, you have to see this in the text, lest you just wrongly conclude, well, if I'm gonna really be sold out to God, I guess I just gotta clean out the bank account and give it all to him. Maybe, he might actually lead you to do that, but that's not the only way, and that's not really what's in view. Because what you see in contrast to the scribes who are devoted to self, is that here's a woman who's devoted to her God. And that's what brings me to this place what what she's actually doing in this great act is revealing the object of her faith you say how did you get that i think you'll see it as we walk through that our nature by nature we do this our nature is to surrender to the circumstances of life right and functionally put our trust in the dollar 87 because we say i have to eat today and if i'm going to eat then i need my two coins so that's the great reality. I'm hungry, I need to eat, and I put my faith, and as long as I have enough money to go to Costco and get a hot dog and, and a drink, I'm good. Does that make sense? The circumstances begin to dictate where we place our faith. But what happens if you don't have the eighty-seven? Well, you either go hungry or you begin to experience great stress. But God is actually saying something to us through this whole gospel appeal, and he's saying, surrender to my lordship and trust me. And I think what this woman has done functionally that is just in her day-to-day life is exactly what David wrote in Psalm 110 where she made a powerful public testimony. This is my Lord. The difficult circumstances of my widowhood, they don't exercise lordship over me. The dollar eighty-seven cents I've got in my pocket, that's not where lordship or provision is found. And I was struck as I was meditating on this over the weekend, as God calls us to surrender to to him, he doesn't care whether you are a giant, killing, crown-wearing, psalm-writing king like David, or an unnamed, unknown, and underfunded widow. He says, love me with all that you are. Devote yourself to me with all that you are. Trust me with all that you need. I will be your Lord. And I think that's such a beautiful place to be in because whether you're staring at 187 pennies which isn't really adequate to live on, or $187 million, that's not where your source of trust and faith should be. But when you are in right relationship to your creator and you say, I know him and he is my Lord. He's sovereign over every area and that even includes his provision of my daily needs. It includes his leadership into the vocation of life. It includes his mastery over all of my relationship. He's Lord of my life. It takes the pressure off of you. And Jesus is showing us an example of a woman who is so humbly devoted to God and so happily dependent upon him that she offers to him the very money that she might have used to go to Costco later that day and buy a meal. And I don't think Jesus is by any means saying, you ought to be willing to give up your hot dog and Coke to follow me. Now that would be a true statement But what he's actually doing is saying, look at her. And in contrast to the scribes, oh, what a stark contrast. They need their long robes to create an identity. They need people to hear their long prayers to find some sense of meaning and satisfaction and approval in their community. They need all of that stuff because they don't have God. But here she is having nothing, personally, materially speaking, but because she has God, oh, she can turn loose of life itself. Are you seeing this? And I say, what a position to be in. I say, oh, God, let me come to that place where I say, because I have you, I have everything. But I struggle like you do because a bill rolls in or some need arises, some circumstance I wasn't prepared for, and I go into panic mode. I think, what a happy Humble position this woman is in because she knows her Lord. The scribes, oh, they, they put in an offering. We know that from other passages of Scripture. They did it out of pretense. Again, they want to be seen. The wealthy in this particular portion gave out of their abundance. And I'm sure many of them even great gave with the right spirit. But this widow, she gave out of her need. So that's what brings me all the way back to say it, it's, a, it's a beautiful, clear read on the true object of her faith. And the object of her faith was not the two coins, was not even her work of service, but God himself. Where is your faith really located? The circumstances you see? That's okay as long as the circumstances are good because then you feel good. But when the circumstances get hard, then what? Is your faith in your Dollar eighty seven. And don't be fooled by thinking just because you've watched your maybe retirement funds grow or your earning capacity grow and, and you've got you know a little reserve fund and enough money to cover your bills. Don't don't make the mistake of thinking that uh, I'm good. That, that's a false trust. Because even if you had 187 million in the bank today, it could be gone by nightfall. And then what? Where's your faith? Maybe you're really religious. And nobody's wearing literal long robes today, but we still dress ourselves in religious attire, don't we? Basically saying, look at me for all of my religious piety. Long robes, long prayers, th- th- those are not saving and securing objects of faith. No, there's only one place for your faith and mind to rest, and that is in Adonai. Jesus the Messiah. What relief, though, when you begin to operate your life under his lordship and say, he is the master and ruler of all. So how do I respond to that? Well, I give him all. I give him all that I am. And if today he says, hey, I need the last dollar and 87 cents out of your pocket, I go, okay. And it it makes you nervous when you do that, but then you turn around and say, um, Lord... I would like a hot dog. And that's where he comes back, and as he does in Matthew six, says, you know what, take no thought for tomorrow. What you're gonna eat, what you're gonna put on. Look at the birds, look at the lilies. Are you not more, much more value than they? Seek my kingdom. I'll provide the stuff. And say, that's a good bargain, Lord. I'll seek the kingdom you provide the hot dog, and he does. Oh, there are some days where he says no hot dog today. Food is actually less of a priority, and this is a day for you to pray. This is a day for you to feel some of the need in this world. I'm, I'm doing things to change you and grow you, so no food today, but trust me, and we say, wow, Lord, okay, give me faith to trust that these rumblings are not an indication that you've forgotten me, but that there's actually something greater than putting food into my stomach today or some days he says I'm going to let the financial pressure really get great on you but I, I'm going to bring you through a season where you just tremble and quake and daily you call on me but you're going to have to trust me it's going to get better but that's because I'm Lord it's not because you're going to be able to like pick yourself up by your own bootstraps and figure this thing out and come up with a strategy for financial success it's because I'm Lord Lord because i'm lord and you know beloved if you follow him for a lifetime what's on the other side of this life new heavens and new earth every tear will be dried every sorrow will be gone every sin that you and i wrestle with daily will be removed forever and it will be bliss i look at the column on the left and i think that's that's what people who are their own lord have to wrestle with every day And I look at the right side and I say, that's where I want to be because I'm not a really good Lord (laughs) even though I want my sons and daughters to think I am. They know I'm not. I need Jesus. They need Jesus. We all need Jesus. So you're going to be Lord of your life and say, you know, this is my life I'm going to live it the way I'm too or you're actually going to submit yourself and say, my Lord, let's bow for prayer. As we're doing that, I just want to give you a minute to pray in response to God's word. What, what is he seeking from you? Will you take the step of faith that he's asking you to take right now? Will you renounce trying to be Lord of your life? If in your heart you're saying right now, yes, I do, it's futile. I'm so frustrated, I've tried to be Lord of my life, and it just doesn't work. Oh, you're, you're in a place to be blessed. Let the Lord do it. Right now you just say, Lord, I've tried to be my own Lord. Forgive me. Take away all that self-devotion and put into my heart devotion for Christ. Is that your prayer? However you want to verbalize it, just speak it out to the Lord from your heart right now. Now Lord, you are the God who sees all There's nothing hidden from your sight this morning, and you know how many of us are just just like the scribes, so devoted to self that we're of no use for kingdom purposes, but many here are renouncing and turning away from that kind of self-devotion. I thank you that you're merciful, that you forgive that you eagerly welcome us as we return to you. Others are at that point of saying, as I'm devoted to you, Lord, what would be the next step of faith? What would be the next act of service? And perhaps you're moving on someone's heart right now to give generously to another person who's in need. To just speak a word of encouragement to take a day to fast and pray for God's blessing over this valley. Oh, Lord God, whatever whatever you and your great lordship desire from us, make it clear to us and give us the strength to, to follow it. And as we conclude our time in your word and worshiping together, we ask, Spirit of God, that you would just remain with us. Remain with us that we may sing sincerely and Bless your name as we sing, and even bless one another as we respond to your word by faith. So we thank you, oh Lord Jesus, thank you that you are Lord. And until that great day when all enemies have once and for all been placed under your feet, we pray that you would use us as you desire, accomplish your great purposes. You alone are our rock, our Redeemer our God, our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.